Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad to have you joining me today. And I want to ask you to join me for the next couple of days as I'll be talking about how grace changes me. Grace changes everything. You know, pride makes excuses. You think about all the excuses you offer up when you don't want to make a change. But humility makes changes. When a person comes to Christ, it seems they generally make major changes at first. I mean, it's like a baby when they're first born. They will grow more the first 24 months than at any other time in their entire lives. When I think about change, grace can change your life. Grace has to change your life because it's a gift given to us by God himself. Well, I think about people who are willing to change themselves. They are experiencing the blessing of being conformed to Christ. And I'm not talking about change for the sake of change, or I'm not talking about changing and adapting negative things into our lives. I'm talking about changing so that good things can take place in our lives. You know, there's this practice called psychotherapy, and it's been in the United States for many years. But as you study psychotherapy, we discover that a number of people, another number of patients are no longer tapping into the benefits of psychotherapy. Now, be careful with this, okay? I don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Psychotherapy involves the long, hard work of facing our own issues, but many people today would rather blame others for their problems. So when it comes to psychology, I'm not a psychology major by any stretch of the imagination, and my goal is not to give you a psychological message, but I do know that you can make changes if you're willing to be involved in the long, hard work of facing your own issues and not blaming others for all of your problems. And so there's been a decline in people wanting to get the help. And why has that taken place? The reason that it has taken place is because many people today are no longer owning up to their shortcomings. One therapist said, I treat people with depression and anxiety. I advertise in saying, are you having trouble with the difficult people in your life? Rather than identifying as a psychotherapist, I use a positive title like I'm a happiness locator. And as a result, they're trying to get more patients to get the help that they need. Is it working? Some will say not really, because people are still not willing to identify themselves as the major problem. C.S. Lewis wrote, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. You see, pride makes excuses. Humility makes changes. I want to look at 1 John 3, 1 through 3, and I want you to notice something that I'll point out to you after I read the text. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, We are called the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Well, here's what I want you to notice about these three short verses. Nine times in three verses, we see the word we and us. We and us. Us is used twice, and we is used seven times. You see, our change starts with God. He is taking us somewhere altogether new. Wherever you place your future hope in will determine how you will live your life in the present. What you think about the future drives all aspects of your life. We have a far greater hope that is bigger than our present success. You see, God has lavished us with his love, called us into his family. We are loved family members of God, all made available through grace. Well, how does grace change me? How does grace change us? Through joy, fellowship, and discipleship. Let's take them one at a time. If we're going to be changed by God's grace, there is a joy factor, okay? Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up at verse number 3. Paul is writing, and he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then verse number six, powerful verse that you hopefully have committed to memory. Being confident of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will carry it out to completion under the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus began a good work based on grace. He's going to carry it out until you meet him in heaven. So there's this joy factor that is involved. Thanking God every time, Paul says, that I remember you. And he says, with all joy, and I also pray with all joy. Now, I can't overstate how much praying with joyful thanksgiving will change your life. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Those who are most discouraged are least involved in joyful thanksgiving. You see, joy makes my prayers more powerful. That's what James told us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay, you're going through a hard time right now. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed with all these different kinds of trials. They're coming from all different angles. So what does James say? He says, consider it pure joy. Well, why? I don't want to consider these trials joyful times. These are trying times. James says the reason you consider it joy and that you pray joyfully because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I'll give you a very simple example. About a year and a half ago, I started walking. And I uh, said, you know, I probably need to get myself in a little better shape. And uh, I'm in my late 50s now. And I said, maybe it's time that I start taking care of myself a little bit and start exercising a little bit. So my neighborhood has a big circle that is three and a half miles long. And so the first time I started walking, I said, man, there's no way I'm going to go that whole three and a half miles. And so I walked a little bit and I got to a certain point and walked back to my house. And it was only about a half a mile. And I was kind of winded, I got to admit to you, right? And so the next day, I said, well, I'm going to walk a little further. And so I kept building up that because I knew that constantly working this would build up my strength and build up my lung capacity. Well, now I can walk around my neighborhood twice. That's seven miles. I don't do it every day. But the reason I don't do it every day is more of a time issue than the fact that I can't make it. 
that's what pressure placed upon us does, right? So James says, you know, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. When you see that God is placing something upon you, and you understand that he's doing it with a purpose of producing perseverance, uh, you can say, okay, I put more weight on me, right? And not that you're going to be one of these people that you put a, a sticker on your back that says, kick me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that when the Lord allows you to face multifaceted kinds of trials, know that he's producing perseverance in you. And he always starts off small and then builds bigger, right? Even simple things. I'm so glad that we are blessed with five children. What a blessing it is. I'm just so glad we didn't get all five of those children at once, right? And we started with one, and then we had two. And then by the time the third child came along, I said, man, uh, we got a big family here. And then God gave us number four, number five. What a blessing, right? Thankfully, we were able to build up our perseverance so that as these children came along, we were mature enough to handle them. We were financially ready to handle them. We were emotionally and spiritually prepared for them. That's how God works. So consider it pure joy when you fall into many kinds of trials because God is using them to test your faith and produce perseverance in you. But you know, joy also makes my strength more purposeful. It's not just strength for the sake of saying, look how strong I am. Look how spiritual I am. No, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. God gives you joy as a source of strength. Now, you know this is true, right? Next time you want to go out and move something, it doesn't really matter what it is. Say you're going to move something from your backyard to your front yard. If in your mind you said, man, this is going to be a pain, right? I can't believe I got to drag this thing out to the front yard. And in your mind, that's an overwhelming task. You know what's going to happen when you do that? You're going to trip. You're going to kick the thing because you're going to get mad at it because you find no joy in doing it. But if you say, you know what? My wife's asked me to move this thing from the backyard to the front yard, and I really do love my wife, and I'm really looking forward to, to moving this thing out there. And then, then you look over, and you see she's looking out the window. She's watching you. And say, oh, okay, my hand is watching me. I'm going to pick this thing up like I'm a young man, and I'm going to drag it out front. What a difference it makes in carrying that burden. It's the same burden. One is being carried with joy. The other is carried with this weight of, I dread carrying this. So Nehemiah, as he's encouraging the people, I mean, they're building this wall around the city of Jerusalem. And on one hand, they're fighting the enemy. So they have a sword in one hand and they have a trowel in the other hand because they're trying to build this wall around Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah says, hey, guys, don't worry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Find joy in what you do. You know, oftentimes we think if I just had the right information, maybe I could change my behavior. There was a book written by David Brooks. It's entitled The Social Animal. And he summarizes the vast amounts of social science research by stating that information programs alone are not very effective in changing behavior. He writes, both reason and will are obviously important in making moral decisions and in exercising self-control. But neither of these character models has proven very effective. You can tell people to not eat french fries. You can give pamphlets about the risk of obesity. You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and to not eat the fries. And in their non-hungry state, 
Most people will vow not to eat. But when their hunger self arises, their well-intentioned self fades, and they eat the french fries. You see, most diets fail because the conscious forces of reason and will are simply not powerful enough to consistently subdue those unconscious urges. The evidence suggests reason and will are like muscles and not particularly powerful muscles. In some cases, and in the right circumstances, they can resist temptation. They can control the impulses. But in many cases, they are too weak to impose self-discipline by themselves. In many cases, self-delusion takes control. So how do we get through the strongholds in our lives? We remember the joy of the Lord as our strength. So would you pray as you're going through trials that the Lord will keep your joy intact? When you come against the pressures of your life, that you will tap into his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. The joy factor is so essential in overcoming issues in our lives that are slowing us down. You see, that's how grace changes you. Grace can fill you with joy. Well, there's a second factor that we've got to look at. If we're going to be understanding how grace can change us, the first is the joy factor. The second is the fellowship factor. The fellowship factor, that is we pray together with joyful thanksgiving, working together in fellowship. So we're going to look at verses 7 and 8, right? Going back to Philippians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 1 through 11, but now we're focusing on verses 7 and 8. So Paul says, writing to the Philippian believers, you know it's right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I so long for you. I want a fellowship with you. Paul realized that when he was going through difficult times, even when he was in chains, defending and confirming the gospel, he was so glad that they were sharing God's grace with him. And he says, I can't wait to hang out with you. This is why I don't understand for the life of me why people are so haphazard about coming to church and haphazard about getting into a group of people. Can I be honest with you, completely honest with you? Most Sunday mornings, I don't feel like going to church. Most Monday nights, the night that I have my small group, I don't feel like going to small group. Most Wednesday nights when I have a discipleship class, I don't feel like going. But you know, every Sunday after I go to church, I say, you know what? I'm so glad I came to church today. I would have missed this opportunity to hear our worship team sing. I would have missed this opportunity to connect with other believers. I would have missed this opportunity to see my brothers and sisters in Christ. I get energy from them. I hope I give them energy back in return. But most Sundays, I don't feel like going to church. Most Sunday mornings, it always amazes me. I wake up on a Sunday morning with a backache and a headache, and I wonder, why in the world should I go to church, right? And uh, my wife often reminds me I have to go because I, I have a message I've got to give. But I've learned that I will not let my emotions take control. I do the right thing. And by doing the right thing, 
Then the motions come. I never get through the end of a Sunday service and man, I really regret spending the last couple hours here doing these church services. I never leave my small group and say, man, I really regret hanging out with these people. My heart is always overfilled as I fellowship with other believers. That's where I find energy. That's where I find power and wisdom. There's such a blessing, and that's where I can encourage other people. Now, these are things we can't do online, right? We can't fellowship online. You got to do that in person. So the fellowship factor. Well, how do we fellowship together? Paul says, I long to fellowship with you. Uh, How do we do this? Well, we share together. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, as we share together, when we make a sacrifice, God is pleased. Did you know that? As we share with a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, that that is actually pleasing to God. So what do I bring to help bring about biblical change? You know, I think about what we come to Christ with. We come to him with nothing but sin. And what does Jesus do? He brings forgiveness. So we share together. Secondly, we suffer together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. So that there be no division in the body of Christ, but that its members should have mutual concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Do you get what Paul is saying here? He's saying, you know what? During our times of suffering, there is this temptation to abandon the body. There's this temptation to drop out. And by doing that, you are contributing to division within the body of Christ. Now, you may have never thought of this before, but your absence in times of suffering with the body of Christ is contributing to the division within the body. I didn't say that. Paul says that. He says that's why there's so many divisions in the body. But its members should have mutual concern one for another. So what Paul is saying is stay connected even in your times of suffering. Because in your times of suffering, we want to join in together with brothers and sisters of Christ, and we want to suffer together. Now, I'm not talking about people that are notorious for dumping things on other people. There are certain people that the only time I see them is when they have a need. They're not really part of the fellowship. They're only interested in in us suffering with them and helping them. That's what Paul is talking about here. Paul's talking about those who are connected to the body of Christ, who go through a difficult time of suffering. They say, I will see you after my time of suffering. Paul says, don't do that. There's to be no division within the body of Christ. You are creating division by doing that. And I don't know how to speak it any more boldly than Paul says it. He said, we are to suffer together. We are to honor together. We are to rejoice together. We're to do life together. There's an author uh, of an article that was written in the New York Times. It's a pretty popular columnist, David Brooks. He noticed that profound suffering can lead to a sense of calling and purpose. Now, this is amazing, right? This guy's not a believer. And it's amazing that this guy who's not a believer can see the profound suffering can, can lead to a sense of calling and purpose. And he says, people who have suffered deeply almost always have this sense of calling. 
when people lose a child. They don't say, well, I had two years where I had low pleasure. I should compensate by going out uh, to do a lot of parties so that I can get high pleasure and balance off my hedonistic account. They don't say that. They want to turn the suffering into holiness. So they create a foundation or they transform their lives. People don't heal from suffering. They come out changed. That's what God's grace does to us in our times of suffering. So fellowship involves sharing together, suffering together, and thirdly, serving together. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, the cells in your heart rhythmically contract in unity, acting together to produce a wonderful heartbeat. If these living cells are separated from the heart in a test tube, they will instinctively continue beating, but not in coordination with each other. If the cells are brought back in contact with one another, the instant they touch, their contradictions again become synchronized. This is the nature of heart cells. Individual heart cells accomplish their God-given function not alone, but together. They're designed to be one of many cells in one heart. Well, they serve a unique function in the body. They're not useful if they don't communicate and coordinate their efforts. If the members of an entire body don't communicate, life is not possible. A single heart cell working alone cannot pump blood to the body, no matter how hard it tries. It needs the other cells to fulfill its purpose. This is a constant pattern found in all living bodies. The only way a body can survive is through as many members working together. All living bodies have communication among the members. So God has called us, because of His grace, to enjoy the joy factor, to enjoy the fellowship factor. We are designed for community. Let me give you the third point. The third point is that we grow together in discipleship. We're still in the book of Philippians. Now we're down to chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is the best and you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Okay, growing together in discipleship so that love may abound. You know, love produces discernment. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, but examine yourselves, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, Abstain from that which is evil. Well, unfortunately, my time is just about up. So I'm going to ask you to join me tomorrow for the beginning of the broadcast tomorrow. And I'll finish up this third point 
growing together in discipleship, looking at Philippians 1, 9 through 11. I want to remind you uh, that Hickory Ridge Community Church has an amazing ministry, and it's called Hickory Ridge Academy. And uh, it's an early learning center. It's a before and after care. It's a wonderful school. And uh, we go from six weeks up through K-5, kindergarten five. And we are always looking for good people who love kids, love the Lord, love working with infants or toddlers or the preschoolers or the kindergarten age. We would love to interview you for a position. Would you call the church office or you can call me directly and I'll put you in contact with the right people. If you're interested in serving at HRA, Hickory Ridge Academy, 252-267-2365. Shoot me a text, give me a call, and I'll put you in contact with the administrators. We would love to have you come work with us. It's an amazing opportunity for you to be involved in, uh, in influencing the next generation. Also, I wanted to invite you to our Christmas Eve services. This year, Christmas Eve is on Sunday. Uh, December the 24th is on a Sunday, and we're having two Christmas Eve services, one at 9 o'clock, the other at 3 o'clock. I would love to have you come and join us for this wonderful celebration of the birth of Christ. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.